I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Welcome. I'm so excited to have Rachel Lauren here with me today. Rachel is a conscious social influencer who is passionate about racial equity, Black life, women's rights, foster care, adoption, and holistic wellness. By profession, Rachel is the chief people officer at dream.org and also a founding partner and chief programming officer for Diversified, a boutique DEI consulting firm. Through her popular social platforms and various contributor positions, Rachel speaks out against racial injustice and advocates for the lives of all Black people. As a proud adoptive mom of three, Rachel is no stranger to foster care and adoption, and more specifically, how this industry affects Black and Brown children and families. Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I would love to. I feel like I want to start with the the your your motherhood journey because um, I know there's a lot of different ways that it's kind of converging right now uh, as as we're even meeting today. So can you share a little bit more about your journey and how you got into foster and adoption advocacy? Yeah, for sure. I um, actually, one of my best friends is adopted. Growing up, I uh, learned about kind of her story. She was adopted at the age of five. And so she had some memories of foster care. But, you know, if you met her and her family, you would never know. Like, she looks just like them. I mean, it's just the perfect blend. And to have heard some of the kind of horrific, if I'm honest, things that happened to her in foster care, but then to see just how much being a part of her forever family really changed her life, it just was something that made me want to get involved in the system. So um, I had always said that I would adopt. At the time, um, you know, I was married at the time actually was trying to conceive. It wasn't happening. And adoption was something that we agreed on together. And so we said, well, why don't we just try this first? And so we um, decided to become licensed to foster. I became licensed and ended up fostering a total of seven children. And out of those seven children, I adopted three, which are now my three forever babies. Um, And I mean, we could talk, tell me what it is you want to hear from that experience, because we could talk for hours just about um, everything that I learned from, you know, just getting licensed and bringing kids into my home. So Um, thank you for sharing that. That's, it's a, it's a beautiful story. And I love that you, from your friendship and your exposure to this, to, to the foster system, then um, that kind of, I don't know how, if that's the only thing that informed it, but that gave you a a view into what that world is like. How do you, there's a lot of white saviorism, I think, that comes up around fostering and um, <clears throat> and adoption mm-hmm. um, and a lot of harm that is caused. And I'm, I would love to get your perspective on how that might impact children of color and mm-hmm. like the importance of there being black foster parents and adoptive parents, and also maybe some of some ways to mitigate the harm if, and that, that might be yeah. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, I'll say, you know, you had mentioned my relationship with my best friend kind of being the catalyst for like wanting to start and get interested in foster care. And I think that concept is something that I want to touch on because what I realized is a lot of people just don't know about the system itself. And um, specifically, a lot of Black and brown families don't know about how they can be involved and um, the need. And so I will say that part of you know, why I'm so passionate about the work that I do and having made the decision to foster and adopt is because I feel like there do need to be more black and brown people represented, right? Parents um, that are stepping up. And I just don't think they don't, they know how, or they don't know the need. Um, And once you know, it's almost hard to turn away. Um, When it comes to white saviorism, yes, you definitely see it um, within foster care. I think that when a non-person of color decides to enter into the system as a foster parent or to adopt, yes, every kid needs a home. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that, but I think that it is important for them to check their own biases and for them to understand that these children are different um, than them. And that that's not a bad thing, but it does mean that society is going to look different for them and how they actually you know, grow and deal with the foundation of our world is it's going to be different. And until they can actually accept that and learn some things on their own, it's going to be very difficult to be the parent that these children need. Um, And I think even as simple as hair and skin and, you know, just the different things that we as people, as humans, we don't have the same, right? And so like, what does it mean to take care of a black girl's hair? Um, And I've seen, you know, families where, there are, you know, mothers that don't want to learn, that don't think about the fact that they they don't have the same hair to begin with. And so how you deal with it and how you take care of it and how you nurture it, it's you have to learn these things. And so it's important for um, honestly white people that decide to enter the space to say, I don't know. Yeah. To learn and to raise their hand and be open to it. And it's hard to say, I don't know. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. something we're we're t- taught in society that it's okay to say. Right. Um, but I love that um, because that's the only way, I guess, you can be open to actually seeing what your child's needs would be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, how, what did you have to learn? Like what, what, what kind of learning did you go through when you uh, became a foster parent and then adoptive parent? You know, I mean, every child is definitely different. So just like there's this underlying thing that we talked about, which is race. Um, the trauma that children come with is also different. Um, there's There are definitely varying levels. Um, I, you know, fostered two children that came to me where their mother honestly needed some training of her own. I don't think that she had the family, you know, the best family to teach her how to be a mother. I think she had some difficult circumstances. She had three kids that were all under the age of five and she was a single mother. Um, and really she just became frustrated and, and discipline was where she, you know, thought she could maybe whoop a child or, you know, do different things that she shouldn't. And I'm not at all condoning it, but honestly, she was able to see what was wrong and fix what was wrong, but also take classes to like learn how to be a mother and to get the support that she needed. Whereas, you know, there's other children that I fostered who, you know, their parents were addicted to a drug and they could not 
move past that addiction and they put them in some really scary situations and they relapsed and, you know, the children weren't eating and there's just levels of severity and those levels of severity and those levels of trauma really mean that you have to be prepared for a lot of different things with children. Um, and I've, I've learned even in adopting, there's this thing that they, they say nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Um, there are things that come up you know, with my children where it's like, where did this come from? But there is this nature versus nurture. And so um, just being prepared for honestly, things that you can't prepare for. Um, I think it's the same thing being able to say, I don't know. And I need to, I need assistance when I need assistance. And I need to learn what I don't know. And I cannot pretend like I know it all and that I can do it all. How do you care for your, I mean, it sounds like that might be part of it. I was going to ask how you care for yourself when you're dealing with the trauma and and there's so many things about, about um, being a trauma steward, you know, of, of holding that trauma for people um, as a, as a practitioner, as a, as a parent, as a friend, how do you care for yourself in addition to knowing when you don't know and how to, you know, get some instruction there? Yeah, for sure. I, therapy, <laughs> I um, say normalized therapy, not just, you know, for your children, because I mean, whether they're adopted or not, I, I think we all need it. Right. Um, and so normalizing it for them, but then also for myself and bringing the difficulties, the own trauma that, it, that you experience, honestly, through the process, all of that to the table when you're talking to whoever it is that you choose to speak with your therapist that helps so much. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've done that. I um, make sure that my kids have that access as well. They, they all know that they are adopted. I don't hide that from them. I'm very transparent with that story. I don't want them to grow up and feel like they didn't know. Um, but I've taught them that families are what you make, not necessarily what you're born into. And that like, they are not only loved, but they were chosen and that's special. Yeah. I got the opportunity to say yes, you know? Um, so I think communicating and really having that community has helped me, but definitely therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, um, do you have other adoptive parents that you communicate with or that you're in community with? Yeah. And I would say more when um, I was fostering than now I have closed my doors to fostering and I'm also pregnant. So <laughs> we're entering a whole nother world of motherhood there. Um, but definitely when I was going through the journey, I would say more, you'll find that, you know, when you get licensed, it's an exciting time because you, you've now said, yes, you've gone through this really long and rigorous process of becoming licensed. You've taken classes and now you just want the kids to come. Yeah. Um, and so you'll see that there are like Facebook communities, there's organizations, there's, um, email listservs, like there's all kinds of ways to connect with people in your area and even outside of and it's just people just excited. Like I got licensed. When am I going to get my first call or this situation happened? How can we assist each other? There are some really great organizations too. One I talk about very often um, is Foster Village. It's uh, actually started here in Austin, Texas, and they're throughout Texas now. Um, it's actually a group of foster mothers that decided they wanted to assist when placements came to homes. And there is no way, like I kind of mentioned, to prepare for a placement. You might get, you know, a child with a level of trauma that has certain special needs. You also might get an infant or a seven-year-old or a five-year-old, depending on what it is that you said you would accept. And it's hard to say, I'm going to just get a car seat. And then you get an eight-year-old that doesn't need one. So these moms um, have gotten spaces donated 
And in the space, they start to collect donations of car seats and clothes and high chairs and whatever it is kids might need. And you go online, you submit a form when you find out what your placement is. And within 24 hours, they're at your doorstep dropping off the things that you need. Um, so it's like resources like that, that I don't think a lot of people know about, but they're so helpful. That's beautiful. I love that. I'll make sure to put the um, link for them in, in the show notes. How are you preparing? And this may be venture on the area of too personal, but how are you preparing yourself and your adoptive children for the arrival of your, of your new one? Yeah. So they also have a bonus sibling. So we're a big, beautiful black, black and blended family is what we say um, in our house. Um, you know, I have, like I said, have always talked to them just about their journey and what it means for me to be their mom. And the fact that like, even though they didn't grow in my belly, they grew in my heart and they are chosen and wanted. And so they understand the difference. Um, but they also understand that it's, it's not different when it comes to love for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have those, those conversations frequently, they're still children. Um, and I think no matter adopted, not adopted children are always the jealousy might come, the questions are going to come like that still happens, but I just really believe in being transparent with kids. So we sit down and we have really thorough conversations about what's coming. Um, for the most part, they're pretty excited. My oldest, um, daughter is just a nurturer naturally. And I think part of it is because she had to be, because my two girls are bio siblings and she was older and really took care of her, um, when they were in the system. But so she thinks the baby's hers already. <laughs> She's like, when is the baby going to be here? Give him to me. So that's, I love that. That's, that's <laughs> exciting. That's exciting. And I, I love how um, transparent you are and honest with, with the kids about it. Cause I feel like that, that feels to me like the best way to mitigate any sort of traumatic experience around it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Um, I'd love to shift a little bit into the work you do with dream.org. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So dream.org, um, is an organization that was started by Van Jones. Um, the purpose of the organization is actually to close prison doors and open doors of opportunity. Originally, um, the organization started as green for all, which was focusing on climate justice. So climate change and the idea that it's actually affecting certain communities at a different rate, just like we see in, in a lot of other areas, right. In life. Um, and then there was the justice vertical, which we were responsible for the first step act, which closed some prison doors. We actually got about 25,000 people out of prison. It's still serving, serving us positively. And so we do a lot of policy work within that vertical, um, Later down the road, what ended up happening was Prince, the Prince, may he rest in peace, mm -hmm. who was really good friends with Van. Um, around the time that Trayvon Martin was murdered, he mentioned that there was this stigma around Black boys in hoodies. He mm -hmm. said, I want to know why Black boys in hoodies are seen as a threat, but white boys in hoodies are seen as tech CEOs and founders. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to change the perception, but in order to do that, we have to get more Black and Brown children interested in that sector. So um, the third vertical of dream.org is actually tech. And we work to get black and brown individuals interested as well as into actual jobs um, within the industry. So those are the three things that we do. 
all of them ladder up to making sure that there are opportunities, that there's equity in the world um, for people that look like me, um, but also that there are actually opportunities even after prison or after you've been system impacted. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, I haven't heard that term, system impacted. Mm -hmm. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about, is that a in a specific area relating to the prison system or is that more of a broad term? Um, yeah, anyone that was formerly incarcerated, um, the, the terminology behind that can be actually very triggering for people. Mm -hmm. um, we also know that the system works differently for different people. So um, one thing that we're you know aware of is just the rate in um, black and brown individuals in prison versus non uh, people of color, right, um, in prison and, and why that might be. And so that leads us to a lot of talks around um, systemic racism and over-policing and different things like that. And so we tend to use system impacted because it does, it actually shifts the mentality of, of people thinking about that population. And it's also less triggering for people that have been through that experience. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, I, I was happy to hear new terms. Um, I, I worked with somebody, I, I interviewed somebody who was um, himself system impacted and he uh, had, uh, he said he was in recovery and he, he liked to use that term being in recovery versus like addiction or sober or mm. clean because like he just liked the way that it shifted uh, yeah, mindset around it. So I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Um, so what, are, what are, you're the people officer. So what does that mean for you? What do you, what's, what's your role? How does that translate into real life for you? Yeah. So, um, it, it's a very fancy title chief people officer for human resources, but, um, it actually, you know, you'll notice in the industry, we've kind of transitioned again, those words mean something to people operations because human resources is a lot more about systems only. Whereas what we do is so much more than that. I mean, yes, there have to be policies and processes and all of that is important in systems, but it's, it's not, um, as intimate as it is when you just think about the fact that we are serving the people that are doing the work in this organization. And so um, that encompasses all of what you know of, of HR, but it also encompasses diversity, equity, and inclusion um, internally for the organization as well. So you're the, you're the, the person with the main, main yep. knowledge of that. How mm -hmm. does that, is, is dream.org, I'm trying to think about how to phrase my question. What is the demographic of people working there? And I'm curious how that impacts what DEI work in an organization looks like if it's not like a predominantly white organization. And it, so I'm just kind of curious about that. Yeah, it is not a predominantly white organization. Um, predominantly people of color and actually more specifically, um, largely a black organization. And then secondarily, I'd say um, Hispanic, Latino, Latino. Um, it is interesting because, you know, when I came from corporate America, I didn't, I never saw people that looked like me doing the work. And so it actually makes me proud to be in an organization where the people that are most impacted and the people that we're working for in the communities that we're serving are also reflected in the organization. Yeah. I think there's something to say about having individuals that know firsthand what it means um, to deal with some of the issues that we're actually, you know, facing. Um, we also have formerly like system impacted individuals within our organization as well doing the work. So they know firsthand, you know, um, the terrors of the system and, and are able to work um, with them as well. I think that 
the challenge becomes kind of sometimes it could be you're isolated from some of the things that are happening. So you have to remember <laughs> what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also that DEI doesn't stop at race, yeah. right? Like that there's so many um, parts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so are we still considering those other parts? Because just black people as a, for example, are not, we're not a monolith. We're so different. And so when we think about, okay, yes, there might be a majority black in our organization, but what does that mean? Because does that still mean that people feel like they're included and that they belong here? Not necessarily. So what are we doing to ensure that that's happening? Yeah. Um, That's, I I love, I love that. Um, I love it when there's like a, a shift away from the white lens, mm-hmm. uh, like, cause I feel like I'm so used to hearing about DEI as like in mostly white organizations. And I mm-hmm. love hearing how you're it bringing those same principles there to, to do even, even better, um, to, to make your organization even better. And I can imagine there's a lot of, because of what you're doing outreach with the community as well. That's a, is that a big part of what you do? Yeah, definitely. Um, community is what we're all about. We have a network um, called the Empathy Network. Where we actually have individuals that are interested in our work that can be a part of the network. We um, have cohorts that our justice team actually trains to assist with going out and being a part of the solution. We have boots on the ground, individuals working on policies and different things in different states, all under some guidance from our justice team. So, I mean, community is, we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for for the community. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's amazing. Uh, is empathy network something that people can join who want to, like, is that, is there, how would Yeah, that- absolutely. If you go to uh, dream.org, you can learn all about the organization on that website, but there are specific, um, things on the, on the website, um, surrounding the empathy network that you can look into and you can sign up, um, for our like newsletters. There's all kinds of ways to get involved. Our social media, um, you can look at those different channels. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're everywhere. So there's multiple ways to get involved. And then we do have a lot of events. Like we have an empathy event that we do every year in DC. Um, so there's a lot of individuals that will come out for that. Um, we do lobbying days where we actually take over. There's a bunch of us that go down and lobby on different bills or things that we're working on. And it's literally just like dream.org staff and volunteers meeting in all of these different rooms and on the Hill and all at once. And then we debrief together. So there are a lot of people that decide that they want to come out and be a part of that too. What does an empathy day look like? Um, so usually there's some lobbying that's done, um, for the empathy day, And we actually have like an entire program where we have um, speakers that come, we're teaching about system, the system and and system and by system impacted individuals. So we do have people that are within our organization that you'll be able to hear from. We have guest speakers that come. Um, It's actually, we started off doing an entire weekend. We've moved to a day now, but um, it's just like a great day to learn, to come together and to realize like empathy is what connects us. Our organization is bipartisan. So a lot of people are always like, really? Like, I'm very surprised by that, by that. But the truth is in order to get anything done in this country, what we know is that we have to find some sort of middle ground. And so we believe on finding middle ground to get to the solution that we need. It doesn't mean that we always agree with people. It doesn't mean that we even like the stance of, of you know everyone. But what we know is that in order for us to get to the solution, sometimes we have to come together and say, these are the things that we agree on. Let's push them. (laughs) So what are some ways that you do that? I love, 
I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about bipartisanship now and finding middle grounds to get solutions that, that work for everyone. So what are some of the ways that, that you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say policy is the biggest thing. Um, so, I mean, even we talked a little bit before about the First Step Act, that wasn't done by one party. That had to be done by by both parties agreeing on what that language looked like to get a bill passed. And so we realized that that's really a part of it. So finding people on both sides of the aisle that agree on certain points so that we can come together for this package and, and decide, you know, how to make change. Um, and so we see it a lot with our um, climate work, as well as our, our uh, system work, criminal justice work. How do you, I'm just like, people have really talked to, to a, <laughs> I don't even know what questions to ask because it's so exciting to hear about. Um, well, that's a lot of people operationing that you, <laughs> that you must be doing uh, to, to be able to. And I'm supporting the the wonderful staff that does it. I mean, I don't have to do that every day. You mm-hmm. definitely should um, get to know some of our advocacy individuals and our justice individuals. We have departments that that this is all they do. And so they are the experts at this. Yeah. I am in awe when I'm able to go to lobbying days. Um, the head of our justice, uh, Janos Martin, he's amazing, um, has set up an advocacy team and a justice team. And like I said, we have people in like almost every single state um, working. And so it's, it's them. They're the ones that do it. How did you, cause I know you, you said that you didn't originally have a, a full position there. How did you end up uh, yeah, so I consult. Um, you mentioned at the beginning in my intro, um, I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. So I have been consulting for a few years now, and Dream.org was actually a client of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the time, I was helping them find someone to take the role that I'm now in. And we went through rounds of interviews, and it just, we just weren't finding um, the candidate that they were looking for. And I jokingly made a statement to one of the executives at the time and said, oh, you should just hire me. I had a, in addition to consulting, I had a whole other job. I was leading DEI for a tech company here in Austin. Um, and then they called me a couple of weeks later and they were like, were you serious? Cause we would love to have you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, um, let me think about it. But the truth is the work that the organization does, it's, it's work that I believe in. Um, and it's work that I do for free already, right? Like this is, this is community involvement. This is what I'm fighting to change. And so it felt like just alignment. Like I can actually take my professional background and my career and join it with passions. So it was just the right was the right opportunity. Yeah. And I can imagine your experience in the tech companies helps you with dream.org's their pillar as well about, about getting more, more black and brown folks into tech. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's amazing. Um, how, what are you like, how can people find you and connect with you and, um, work with you? I mean, you work with an organization, but are there, are there services ways that people could connect with you. Are you still doing consulting? Yep. Absolutely. So, um, I am an Instagram user. I know people, everyone, you know, has like their preferred social media outlet. Mine is Instagram. Um, at the only Rachel is my handle. So you can find me there. Uh, my website is, uh, rachellauren.com. So you can actually go, I'm, I'm sorry. It's the only rachel.com. <laughs> you can actually go there 
um, and find me on my website. There's information on how to connect with me on that website. Uh, Diversified Now is my diversified consulting firm. So you can find information on that through my Instagram as well as my personal website. Um, And then dream.org is the organization that I work for. There's also information that you can find on me there too. So how do you find the time to have three children and a fourth one coming and a bonus child (laughs) and do all of this work? I'm a Capricorn. That's I, the first I have to be honest. I don't like, I don't know what to do. So for anyone <laughs> listening who doesn't say, oh, I get it. Like, what's that <laughs> um, Capricorns are pretty known for multitasking and somehow just making it work. I, it's kind of natural to me. I know that that sounds crazy. My mother is a Capricorn as well. I was raised by one. So I, I guess it's just something that comes naturally. I would say outside of that though, I've learned to stop looking at life as balance. I had a mentor of mine tell me one time that like work-life balance is, is a cop-out. It's not real. That the truth is in order for something to be balanced, two things have to have equal weight. And so you're basically saying that you're balancing work and personal 50-50 all the time. And that's just can't happen. It doesn't happen every day. Um, and you have to give yourself permission that on Monday, maybe you have to give 60% in, a, in an area that the next day you'll give 20. Um, and it doesn't make you a bad mother or a bad employee or, you know, whatever it is that you have to do. It just means that you know that you have priorities and they have to harmonize. So look at it like a plate of harmony. Um, and so that's what I've started learning how to do is like carving out one, I need to really have a focus in one area and being okay with not focusing on something for a little while, if that's what needs to happen. Yeah, I love that. Do you call it work-life harmony or is that like to, like, do you use that phrase or that was more just kind of a way you describe it? No, I use that phrase. <laughs> I love that. I never heard that before. Yep. Um, I'd like that so much more because that takes a lot of the pressure off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and this myth of having to do it all, it's not really. No not really a thing. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat with me. I I feel like there's so, I've learned so much already from talking to you. Um, and, um, I can't wait to share all these resources and check them out myself. Um, part, part of my commitment to this work, uh, as a white woman, is I, I donate a proportion, a portion of my earnings, to incredible organizations. So I'm going to take a look at dream.org also and, and look into some, making some donations there. Um, so thank you again for, for being here. Any, any last words for our listeners? No, oh, thank you so much um, for having me. I appreciate it. I would love for everyone to look into dream.org and see ways that you can get involved. Um, I think the biggest thing is to start somewhere. I know a lot of times I have conversations with people that are like, there's so much that I want to do. There's so many things that need to be done. I just don't know where to start. And the truth is start somewhere. And once you do, you'll figure it out along the way. So um, I'm writing that down. I love that. I think that's going to be, that's very, very great advice. Um, So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R, M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.